and particularly praying for revival. And so uh, a, a very uh, familiar passage of Scripture is in Second Chronicles chapter 7, and uh, we often use this. I think we uh, sometimes even misuse it, uh, but uh, it's a uh, passage that it uh, speaks to what uh, we want to talk about tonight. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7, and let's begin in verse 13. Verse 13 says, If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now this scripture uh, it, uh, it has a verse that's often quoted so often in many churches to imply revival. Uh, it can be applied, I believe, in a very broad sense. But here in this uh, study this evening, in this message, we're going to see it that revival is not what most people think it is. It isn't uncommon today to hear Christians pray, and even pray in prayer meetings pray aloud for God to send a revival. However, I don't think they always do it right. Because it's important for a Christian to be informed by Scripture in order to pray the right way. We need to know God's Word if we're going to pray in a correct way. Jesus said, if ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. John chapter 15. And we must have God's words abiding in our minds in order to pray intelligently. We must get the facts from the Bible so that we know what God is like. We need to know how he thinks about things and what he wants to do in answer to our prayers. But many times, I'm afraid public prayers for revival are many times greatly disconnected from the truth of God's word. They're not only disturbing to people who know better, but also misleading to those who are motivated to pray for revival. Now, some would say, Lord, revive America. But what does that prayer mean? Is it really scriptural to ask the Lord to revive our nation? You know, God has had a covenant with only one nation of men in history in the world, and that was Israel. It wasn't the United States. God did not make a covenant with the United States. He made a covenant with Israel. And so what, in what biblical sense should we expect the Lord to revive America? Now, when there is a call for prayer, and sometimes, and I've, uh, I've seen already a call for the, a gathering for an annual day of prayer, and we think that's a great thing that one of our presidents has put into uh, the existence of having a, a, the nation, a national day of prayer, 
And uh, often I've been asked when I would pastoring other in other communities, asked by the ministerial alliance to come and join in a prayer, a day of prayer. Well, how can you join together with men who teach false doctrine? How can you pray with men who you don't even know are saved? You know, you get the Catholic priest and the Lutheran, the Episcopalians, and this and that. And all say, let's all pray. And that sounds good, but is it really biblical? I've often not participated, I should say, in what we call National Day of Prayer activities. Now, I pray. Don't get me wrong. I think it's good for us to pray. But I think every day should be a day of prayer. You know, I've heard people say, well, we need to pray for the moral rebirth of our country. That's a, a, a very perplexing prayer. First of all, a rebirth is by definition a miracle. Remember what Nicodemus said in John chapter 3, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? That was a question by Nicodemus recorded in John 3, and it's a reasonable question. It points to the physical impossibility of rebirth except by miraculous power. Moreover, we have no basis for asking God to perform a miracle unless the scriptures indicate that he is willing to do it. There's nothing in the Bible about a moral rebirth of a nation. What do we mean by that? Do we mean return to the morals and the family life of uh, the 1950s? Was, uh, were things good in the 1950s? Some of you don't even have an idea what was going on in the 1950s, do you? 50s. Well, I was born, for one thing. <laughs> some of you were uh, well into your life, and some of you are well into your marriages, and, and life seemed like it was really great. You know, we talk about the good old days. Well, is that what we want? The fact that the only rebirth that's ever happened is a spiritual rebirth in an individual soul. Rebirth takes place in an individual, not a nation. And if we're going to see any kind of revival, it's going to have to be because people get saved and they get reborn or they get born again as uh, Jesus was telling uh, Nicodemus. We can pray for that, but we really have no uh, reason to believe that God will respond to a prayer concerning the moral rebirth of our country. Well, that's kind of an introduction. The first thing I want us to look at this evening is misconceptions of revival. You know, sometimes we come to revival meetings uh, as we are approaching our revival meetings and we kind of have our ideas what that all means. And then the revival meetings come and they go and we just go back doing what we were always doing. Nothing really happened. We say, we didn't have revival. We missed it that time. Guess we'll have to try again. We'll have to wait till next year. 
Well, there are some misconceptions of revival. There are two views, I believe, of revival. One is a revival of lost souls. That's a one view. A revival of lost souls. I think that's a popular view. I hear so often that revival is winning the lost souls. Well, technically there's no scripture of revival of the lost. You won't find the scripture of the revival of the lost in the Bible. And so we need to look at why we call saving souls revival. Why do we do that? Some churches imply that revival is when they are winning souls and the church is growing. We call that revival. But the truth is that winning lost souls is not really revival. You know what that's called? The Bible calls it harvest. Harvest time. Jesus referred to the saving of the lost as harvest in Matthew chapter 9, verse 37 and 38. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the revival. No. The Lord of the harvest. That he will send forth laborers into the harvest. John 4.35 Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. Now, I do understand why some call winning the lost a revival. It's because that a lost soul is spiritually dead. And they, they get saved, they receive the Holy Ghost, they become spiritually alive. Or they would be revived, so to speak. But And I agree that you can apply that theory to the lost, but I think it's a misconception that's causing some churches to miss the real purpose of revival and leaving saints powerless. And I'll say a little bit more about that later. So the first view is revival of lost souls. The second view is revival of lacking saints. The revival of lacking saints. And this is less talked about as far as revival is concerned. A revival of needy Christians who are lacking real spiritual growth in their lives. And although the most popular view would be that of the lost, we're going to see that the true concept of revival is that which is done in a local church with the saints of God. We go to the book of Ezra and uh, look there in chapter 9, in verse 8 and 9, it says, And now for a little space grace hath been showed from the the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a nail in his holy place, that our God may lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. For we were bondmen, yet our God hath not forsaken us in our bondage, but hath extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us a reviving to set up the house of our God and to repair the desolations thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem. You have another passage there in Isaiah, Isaiah 57 
and verse 15. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now, those scriptures point something out to us, and that is that revival is the reviving of God's people or one's spirit. The Hebrew meaning for the word revive is to keep or make alive, to give life, to restore, to repair, to raise from the dead. Basically, when we speak of revival, we're speaking of making alive that which is dead and ready to die. So let's look at, secondly, a biblical revival. A biblical revival. I believe there is a great need for men and women to pray for revival today. But ours must be informed prayers, I believe. We can't just say, Lord, give us revival. You see, again, we go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. It's a great revival verse. It contains four principles that will make our prayers scriptural and effective. Principle number one, if my people, that's the first thing he says, if my people, I've heard people use this scripture reading to imply that if we will humble ourselves and pray for the lost, then God will heal our land. They use this to try and get God to give them souls. No, no, no. I believe we must do it God's way. Not what we think is God's way, but we must do it God's way. Real revival is when people of God turn from their carnal ways. It means to restore a person to their first real fervent love of God and righteousness. God said, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, then will I hear. This is a timeless principle that's always applied to revival praying. And it always will. God revives his people. Revival is something the Lord will do for his own. This was true when he gave the promise in 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14. And it's still true today. However, I think there are differences between Old Testament revival and New Testament revival that we need to understand. And of course, the second book of Chronicles is a part of the Bible we call the Old Testament. And the term Old Testament refers to the covenant God made with the nation of Israel, especially applicable in the centuries before the first coming of Christ. Old Testament means Old Covenant. Believers in Christ today do not live under the stipulations or the provision of the Old Covenant, but we enjoy the better promises and the provisions of the New Covenant. And although revival is essentially the same in all dispensations, the results of revival have differed according to the covenant. Now, revival always has to do, though, with God's people. Always with God's people. 
and the Israelites under the Old Covenant, and believers in Christ under the New Covenant. Now, we've already noted that God's people under the Old Covenant was the nation of Israel. The stipulations, the promises in that covenant are reviewed there in Deuteronomy chapter 27 through chapter 30. And if the people would obey the special laws and statutes and ordinances that they were given by the Lord through Moses, he would bless them, and he would bless them with wealth and health. Now, he wasn't preaching the health and wealth gospel that we hear so much about today, but he would bless them with wealth. He would bless them with health. He would bless them with victory in battle. He would bless them with growing families, uh, many physical blessings. Now, should they refuse to comply with the laws and they would turn away from the Lord to other gods, as we've been studying in the book of Hosea, they would lose those blessings and the experience, they would experience judgment or chastisement through very specific curses. And when the blessings disappeared, the curses came and Israel was in need of revival. And if they would repent, they would get back to obeying the law of Moses, the blessings would come back. And you see in these chapters how the Old Testament revival worked. Now, of course, this is what is described here in 2 Chronicles chapter 7. King Solomon was asking God to make the temple that they had just built for him a place where the nation could meet him and could seek his reviving power and blessing. Again, if you go to verse 13, it says, If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, when we read this, we need to understand the context. How many times you heard me say that? You know, it's real easy to take this verse right out of here and make it mean all kinds of things. But we need to look at it in the context. We need to see what it is. The healing of the land spoken of in 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14 was an agricultural healing. It was to be deliverance from drought. You notice they had locusts there in verse 13. They had no rain. They had pestilence. And this was because the promise was for Old Testament revival. It was not a political, it wasn't a moral, it wasn't economical, and it wasn't even spiritual healing of a Gentile nation like the United States. The New Covenant, though, under what, which we live now as Christians, that's given to us and explained to us in Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10. And it was promised in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 as a covenant that God would have with Israel when they repent in the latter days and were converted to Christ. And the Lord Jesus taught that we believers live under a covenant, that covenant now, according to Matthew 26. And the night before he died on the cross, he explained the practical applications of this covenant that would be experienced in a New Testament age. Now, the teaching is found in John chapters 13 through 17. And uh, if we had time tonight, uh, 
we would probably could spend a long time there. In fact, we spent a long time in John's chapter, John chapter 13 through 17 uh, several months ago. But uh, if you think about it and you look there, there's five blessings that are highlighted there. Uh, there's remarkable answers to prayer offered in Jesus' name. You find that in John 14 and John 16. There's obvious help of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. Remember, the Holy Spirit was referred to as the comforter, the paraclete, the one that came alongside to help. And we have the indwelling Spirit, and he's helping us to live out the Christian life. So there's answers to prayer offered in Jesus' name. There's obvious help of the Holy Spirit. There's a supernatural peace and joy and love in the lives of those who abide in Christ. Remember, John chapter 15 is all about abiding in Christ and the promises of love and joy and peace if we abide in Christ. It also talks about bearing fruit in John 15. Bearing fruit, much fruit. That's spiritual reproduction. And then it also talks about persecution. The just shall live by faith, but you know, there's also persecution that's going to come along. Now, all five of those will be experienced by Christians along as they live on a level of submission and faith where the Lord can give them these things. That's called abiding. When we fail to live at that level, we fail to experience those blessings, it's because we need a New Testament revival. Now, it would, 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 it would be right to say that the people of God in general are in need of such a revival right now. I think Christians across our nation need that revival. I believe Christians in our church need that revival. But we would be talking about God's family and not about a particular human nation when we pray for revival, we're praying for God's people to be revived and not our country to be revived. What happens when, our, when God's people get revived? It's going to have an effect on our country, right? It's kind of one of those things, you know, where we pray kind of generally. Oh, Lord, send a revival to our nation. How does that look? How does a revival in our nation look? Is it biblical to pray that way? I think it's more biblical to pray, Lord, send a revival in me and those in my church so we can have an effect on our community and our, the people around us. And we can see people come to Christ. And that's the kind of revival that's urged in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. We're going to look at that here in just a little bit. But, you know, if the churches in America were really revived and brought back to New Testament Christianity in its purity and its power, our society, our culture, even our politics would greatly be affected. However, it would be a revival of Christians and not a revival of the country. And that's the kind of revival we need to be praying for. So the first thing is, if my people. Secondly... We must humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves. The Old Testament revival described in 2 Corinthians 7.14 would begin with God's people humbling themselves. So, 
So would the New Testament revival that you find in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. And uh, in those verses there, in verses 1 through 5, the problem that was plaguing the churches is identified as worldliness. Or it's called friendship with the world. Now in verses 6 through 10, the cure is identified as the grace of God. Let's turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And let's first of all just read verses 1 through 5. James chapter 4, verse 1 says, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust, that war in your members? Well, he's got to be talking to unbelievers, right? No, he's talking to believers. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore shall be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Do you think that scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? And then then you come to a, a very important word in scripture. Verse, chapter 6. The first word is, but. But. Look at verse 6. But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, and giveth grace unto the humble. And then verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You see, the grace of God for revival is accessed by humility. Under both the Old and the New Covenants, the people of God had to humble themselves in order to be revived. And then you see the revival promises there in verses 8 through 10. Look at the revival promises. He says in verse 8, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. You see, when God's people humble themselves under the new covenant and draw nigh to him by confessing their sins for cleansing and surrendering their hearts for purification, God said he will draw nigh to you. And he'll give you the new covenant blessings of John 13 through 17. So we must humble ourselves. Thirdly, Third principle here is we must seek God's face. Now many scriptures call for God's people to seek his face and find him. Especially when they have strayed from the path of his will. You see that in the Old Testament. You see it in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 29. But if from thence thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him. If thou seek him with all thy heart and with all thy soul. You find it in 1 Chronicles chapter 28 and verse 9. 1 Chronicles 28, 9. 
And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations and thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. Psalm 27, verse 8. When thou sayest, Seek ye my face, my heart said unto thee, Thy face, Lord, will I seek. Proverbs eight seventeen. I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Amos chapter 5, verse 4. Amos 5, verse 4. For thus saith the Lord unto the house of Israel, Seek ye me, ye me and ye shall live. And you'll see the same thing right here in James chapter 4. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. You see, when God's people deliberately and earnestly seek the face of the Lord, he will be found of them. And seeking God always involves turning from our wicked ways, because God is holy. Seeking God's face means seeking his favor seeking his blessing. He speaks of people looking, uh, it speaks of people looking for God, aware of his absence from them, desiring to have him and his blessings back. And so the words here in James chapter 4 about weeping and mourning indicate that Christians who want revival must be serious about it and they must be passionate about seeking his face. To pray for revival calls for us to seek his face and turn from our sin. That brings us to principle number four, which is we must turn from our sin. We must turn from our sin. Now, as we have, can see, revival is a process of a saint or a church being revived when they were either dead or falling asleep. It's about the time I should start ringing a bell or something, right, in this, this part of the message? The process of dying usually happens because of demonic spirits or compromise or apostasy or just plain old sin. Sin in the saint or sin in a church. You see, anywhere you read revival of God's people, you read about a restoration or rebuilding a temple. It usually was preceded by a backsliding or an apostasy of God's people. There was a falling away uh, of truth. And the people of God began to fall into sin and eventually they strayed away from God. You just have to read the book of Judges to see that over and over again. And so God must bring judgment in some form such as a famine or destruction or he just withdraws his presence. Now is... We read in 2 Chronicles 7.14, we can see that God shut up heaven. That's what it says there. Uh, and it caused trouble to take place. And that should cause people of God to turn from their wicked ways. And so often in Israel's case, they would not turn. As I said this morning in our study of, of Hosea, they just refused to turn. They got into a habit of worshiping false gods and their sin and their wickedness, and they just wouldn't turn. Know any Christians like that? Yeah. 
See, that's a process that God uses in revival. He allows things to happen which lead us to repentance. And there's more scripture on people of God repenting than for the sinner repenting. Do you realize that? More scriptures on the people of God repenting than there are of sinners repenting. So that brings us thirdly to the blessing, blessings of revival. Every promise of revival contains the assurance that God will answer the prayer for revival. Again, if we look at 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14, it says, If my people, in other words, if my people will do what he requires, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin, and revive them again to a restoration of covenant blessings. If my people, then will I. You want revival? It's got to start right here. If my people, then will I. It's like, turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, as it says in Zechariah 1.3. It's like, return unto me, and I will return unto you, in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 7. Again, it's the same as what we read in James chapter 4 and verse 8. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. You see, revival promises are conditional promises. They do not just predict something that God will do in the future, but they promise what God will do if we will turn back to him. Conditional promises present God as predictable. He has said that he will respond to our prayers and repentance. We can count on him to do what he said that he would do when we do what he called us to do. Revival praying is praying in the will of God. And predictability, uh, it will predict what it seeks. Remember what uh, John, 1 John 5 tells us, that we can have confidence in the fact that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Uh, and if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. You see, the reviving of God, the people of God is clearly according to God's revealed will. He will revile, uh, revive the members of his family if they will repent and look to him to do it. This is the power of revival praying. Now, if you read the book of Joel, you'll see that uh, what, what we have to do to have revival in our midst. Sometimes you uh, hear foreign missionaries tell about this. But are we willing to pay the price? You know, some, some of our missionary families have paid a, a great price to go to the places where they've gone. But are we willing to pay the price? Are we willing to uh, look to the Lord? It says there in Joel chapter 2 and verse 17, we must weep between the altar and the porch until we have repented from all of our ways, our sinful ways. 
We must return to total trust in God, for only he can give the increase. And when we have repented before God and turned back to him, then he's going to pour out his blessing upon us. He's going to heal, and he's going to deliver us from ourselves, first of all. And he will give us souls, and he'll give us power in prayer. You see, so often we have this all wrong. We think if we bring in more vessels, we just bring in the lost, we just bring in the lost, that God's going to pour out his spirit. No, this is not the case if we are dry and if we are dead. It's only true if we are already flowing and we're already experiencing the anointing of God upon our lives. The apostles had power first. Then they went out into the streets. God will bring the lost when the church is flowing with the power of God. You cannot reach the lost if you do not have the power of God moving through you. If you try, you'll just be like the rest of the religions. Ineffective. I'm going to make a statement that may shock you as we close here. But really think about it. There is no scripture for fasting for the lost. I haven't found it. No fast, there's no scripture that says we need to fast for the lost. Say, what? Any scripture you find on fasting is for bringing our own flesh into subjection to God. Fasting is for binding attitudes, spirits, and seeking God's direction. And it's my understanding that if we are dead to self, then God will move and use us to win souls and to minister to people. You see, when a church is often praying and fasting and maybe even calling out the names of those who are lost, and nothing happens... And there's no one at the, at the altar, then something's wrong. I know what the answer may be. They're trying to do God's work with their own ideas, and they're forgetting one very important thing. John 12, verse 24 says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone, but if it die... It bringeth forth much fruit. If we, that are called by his name, will humble ourselves, pray and seek his face, and turn from our wicked ways, our sins and our methods, then, and only then, will he forgive our sins and heal our land. What does that mean, heal our land for us? He'll give us a harvest. The Lord says that Christians must repent. Repent of lust, of pride, of self-willed ambitions, of carnal programs, of methods. Many Christians are lacking humility. They're sincerely seeking the Lord, but they refuse to turn from their sinful ways. There must be repentance and a trying to do 
and trying to do God's work with our own ideas and our own ways, repentance from that, then and until then, only until then, will God revive saints and bring in a harvest. So true revival is, I believe, that when we die to our flesh and we are made alive in total trust to God, we must be obedient to the leading of God's Spirit, and then God will heal our land. And that doesn't mean the United States. That means the harvest around us that is already white. But it starts right here. I trust that we understand what... God is telling us, and we need, to, we need to be careful about looking at some passages and trying to make something out of them that there isn't there. And so I trust God will help us as we continue to pray for revival. Be looking inward more than outward. Let's pray. Father in heaven.